How interested are you in the Lord doing something in your life this morning? Right? The only hope that we have for an answer to that is him actually wanting to do it. Because we don't earn that. We don't actually do anything to deserve it either. But I can promise you one thing. This morning, you are going to get a more full glimpse of the gospel. And I promise you that you're going to see just how good the gospel is. Now, when I say the word gospel, I'm, it, it's, it's amazing to me how many people don't actually know what it means or what the gospel is. The word gospel is the Greek euangelion, and it means good news, right? Can we say good news? Good news. And this morning, we're going to see just how good this good news is. We are in the longest section of Jesus speaking in the Bible, the longest section of red letters. We're in his farewell address. He's closed out his public ministry uh, in, at the end of chapter 12, and now he's in his private ministry. He's ministering unto his disciples in the upper room. And we're in this farewell discourse. And if you can remember last week, we were in the first part, or the, sorry, the last part of chapter 14, where, where Jesus multiple times says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Praise God that you know that. Praise God that's in your heart. Or he says, if you love me, you will keep my word, right? And so, and so we, we, we just, this is the emphasis of setting your heart to loving God, how vital, important understanding what faith really is. It's not just a conscience awareness of you have set yourself to loving God. You've given yourself to him in that regard. And one of the things that Jesus said that if you love me in such a way, we found out where we get positioned, where we find ourselves in God. In fact, uh, you remember the Tupperware illustration, right? There were four illustration or four Tupperware pieces. We had the big one, and that was the Father. And inside of the Father was the Son, and inside of the Son was you and me, and then inside of us was the Holy Spirit, right? Do you remember that? I had um, I had Jack Purvis come up to me after the end of the survey. He said the most amazing thing about that illustration is that you had all your lids. And I said, you're right. You don't know what I had to go through to go digging for those lids. It's how much I love you. But, but I used that illustration to show you just how much God wants to be caught up in your life. And I showed it to show you how much God wants you to be caught up in his life. But Jesus has a different illustration in mind this morning for just how much he wants to be involved in your life and how much he wants you to be involved in his life. He's got a different illustration, a different way to describe that relationship. What are the first five ver words in this verse, in this passage? Verse one. I am the true vine. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're getting to the very last I am statement in the gospel of John. Let's see if we can refresh our memory. Shout out some of the I am statements Jesus has made in this book so far. I am what? The way, the bread of life, the truth and the life. The, the way, the truth and the life are grouped together in his statement, the bread of life. What else? The good shepherd. What else is another shepherd one? The light of the world. He said, I am also the, the gate. Right? He also said that he is um, the resurrection and the life. Right? 
And in every single one of those, he uses the definitive. And what that means is he doesn't say, I am a light that you might find among many lights in the world. I am a way among many ways you might find in the world. I am a good shepherd that you might find among many good shepherds in the world. No, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no one else. There's nothing else but me when he says this. And we get to this last one, and he holds the same emphasis. I am the true vine. Now, our initial thought is to immediately delve into the illustration, to get into what he's trying to paint a picture of in our relationship with him. And we'll get there. But I don't know if you know how dripping this is with theology, with history, with Old Testament imagery. This wasn't something that I found out that I inherently knew uh, when I came to study this. As I was studying this week, I was like, no way. This is so much more than I thought. It's not just an illustration. Let me show you just how gospelicious this is. When, When Jesus says that he is the true vine, he says the true vine, which means that there's a what vine? False vine. He indicates the existence of a false vine. So we're going to explore what that is because it's in the Old Testament. But, but let, me, let me set some context here. Uh, we didn't talk about it last week, but at the end of chapter 14, at the end of verse 31, he says, get up, let's leave this place. Some scholars think that they didn't actually leave, that they stayed in the upper room for the rest of this discourse. Some say, well, yeah, they got up, and Jesus is continuing to talk to them as they're walking from there to the garden and and where he's going to pray. Now, uh, if the theory is true that he got up and they all left and they were walking to the garden, and if they passed through the temple precincts, here's what's crazy. They would have seen a massive mural of a vine with clusters of grapes the size of a man painted on a wall in the temple, in the temple precincts. They would have seen that. Josephus records this, this massive mural. So it's possible that as Jesus is walking by and he points to this, why would a vine be painted in the temple precincts? Well, in the Old Testament, The vine is often pictured as, or symbolic of, Israel. It's symbolic of the covenant people of God under the old covenant law from Moses. You can see these connections in Psalm chapter 80. You can see them in Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah 12. You can see them in Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15. You can see them in Ezekiel 19 and 17. You can see it in Hosea 10. I'm going to talk about two of them real quick. But here's what's crazy. Every time in the Old Testament, God brings up the imagery of a vine and connects it to Israel, he always calls out the terrible, rotten fruit that comes out of the vine of Israel. And it always accompanies judgment. Every time. Israel's a vine and their fruit stinks. Every time. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but maybe if you're writing notes, this would be helpful for you to write down. There's this story 
about a, a gardener planting a vineyard. He does so much to take care of it, and it's beautiful. It's planted with love. And when the vine starts to bear fruit, instead of growing good grapes, the vineyard grows wild, inedible grapes. And then in verse 7 in that chapter, he says that that vine is Israel. It's identified as the nation, the people of Israel, the covenant people of God. Or let me show you this passage in Hosea 10. It says this, Israel is a lush vine. It yields fruit for itself. Huh, okay. The more his fruit increased, the more he increased the altars. Those aren't altars of worship to Yahweh. Those are altars to, to, to pagan gods. The better his land produced, the better they made sacred pillars. Again, idols, worshiping other gods. Their hearts are devious, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and demolish their sacred pillars. This is every time Israel is called the vine in the Old Testament. God says, man, and your fruit is rotten. So when Jesus calls himself, the true vine. He's making a vivid and striking contrast with the nation of Israel. Israel was failing to be a life-giving, fruit-bearing vine. They couldn't get it. They were unable to do it. And now, in contrast to all of their failure, which, by the way, his disciples were part of Israel. They were Jews, so they knew this image very well. In contrast to all of Israel's failure, Jesus is claiming, I am the true vine. I, I'm the one that Israel was just supposed to point to. I'm the one that actually can bring forth good fruit, unlike the nation of Israel. Guys, Jesus had already, in several ways, far surpassed many Old Testament images and, and principles. He's already superseded the temple. He's already superseded the Jewish feasts. He's already superseded Moses and various holy sites. And here he is saying that he supersedes Israel as the very focus and locus of the people of God. So let's say a person uh, came to the religious leaders of the day saying that they wanted to be made right with God, with Yahweh. The religious leaders would tell them, become an Israelite. Get circumcised. Start offering your sacrifices. Observe and celebrate the Jewish festivals and holy days. And Jesus is very clearly saying here that becoming an Israelite is now ineffective. And unnecessary. You need to follow me. He's saying you need to be united to me, not to the ethnic lineage of Abraham. Union with Jesus, connection to the true vine, is the only way that we can please the gardener. And isn't this just so beautiful? Isn't this amazing? That where, where all Israel knew was failure and inability to measure up to what God was saying was good fruit, Jesus steps into that failure and says, where you guys couldn't measure up, I can. I can live the life that you couldn't live. I can bear the fruit that you couldn't bear. 
And all you need do now is abide in me. Remain in me, not in Israel. That old covenant I am fulfilling and I am doing away with and I am establishing a new one. In the place of Israel's failures to measure up, Jesus comes in and says, I can do this. I've got this. Just connect to me. Can you see the gospel there? How, good news, how much good news that is? Because what that means is that, that, that it's, not, it's not divided by ethnicity anymore. It's not divided by any kind of racial tensions anymore. It's simply you get to come to Jesus no matter who you are. He's available for you. And he'll fulfill everything that you couldn't. And I don't know about you, but, but if I took long enough to think about the ways that I couldn't measure up, I'd, I'd drown in that, wouldn't you? This vine imagery is just so full of the gospel. It gives us the greatest view in light of all of our failures and ability to do things that actually please the Lord. Jesus says, I've done it. Just connect to me. So now, because Jesus has accomplished it with his life, because he bore the good fruit that Israel could not bear, instead of becoming an Israelite, the command for us now is to do what? It's in the verse, verse 4, he says that we should do what in him? Remain. I, I prefer abide. That's how I memorized it when I was a kid. Um, abide in me and I in you. How do we want to be right with God? How do we get to be right with God? Remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, and him abiding in you. You know the reason why I know that's the right question to be asking of this text? is because of the, the, the very vivid imagery we see in verse 6 of what happens to those who don't abide in Christ. And we'll get to that. But it's, it's, it's apparently a very essential thing we're to remain, to abide in Jesus. You remember the Tupperware? Stay in him. Dwell in him. We're now to remain and abide in Jesus. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and I don't, I don't want you to actually shout out the answer. I want you to hold the answer that you have to this question in your head. So here's the question. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Hold it. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? I'm guessing, if you have your answer, that most of it has to do with something around do your devotions, go to church, sing some songs of praise every now and then, uh, give your offering, fast sometimes, definitely pray, read your Bible. Brothers and sisters, uh, those are all behaviors, right? I would actually call those environments. The word abide doesn't mean much of that, though those are things that happen when we are abiding. The word of abide, the verb, can denote staying or living in a place, 
In fact, when, when Jesus in, in John 14 says, in my Father's house are many what? Rooms. Some of y'all said mansions, because I got mine up there. It's going to be gold. It's good. Rooms. <laughs> You're like, oh, man, where's my mansion? We were just singing about that a few weeks ago, right? Um, the word rooms there is the noun of the verb of abide. There are many abodes. <laughs> Who says that anymore, though? I don't use that word. Welcome to my humble abode. No. It's a place of residence. It's a place where you live. So to abide means to, to live in a place or stay there with someone or, or to continue in existence or in condition or life in that place. And so here's what's crazy. That verb, to abide, has already shown up just a few verses earlier in chapter 14. And it expresses the closest possible relationship between the, the Father and the Son. So in verse 10 of chapter 14, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. That word lives is the same verb here as abide. The Father who abides in the Son, who dwells in the Son, who resides in the Son. It's describing the relationship Jesus has with his Father, and Jesus is saying to you, now you abide in me. Dwell in me. Remain in me. It's talking about the relationship as well between Christ and the Christian. When he says in verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Can't you see how crazy that is? How absolutely insane that is? That, that, that Jesus would say that the relationship that he has with his father, he's inviting you into with him. He wants to have the same kind of relationship, share the same kind of love. He wants to have the same relationship with you that he has with his father, and here he's calling it abiding or remaining. That's astounding. How good is the gospel? I feel like when I ask that question, we should all shout out, so good! How good is the gospel? But here's the thing. We can confuse the concept of abiding in Jesus with an emotion. Or we can confuse the concept of abiding in Jesus with just a nice experience on a Sunday morning. Guys, abiding isn't primarily emotional. It's not. Your emotions, 100% of the time, are always reactionary. Always. They always follow a thought that you are holding in your head. So to say that abiding would be an emotional thing means it's reactionary. It's not. Abiding is also not just simply an experience, though it is something we experience. 
Here, Jesus is talking about a fixed reality. He's saying, true disciples are connected to me. We're united together. Now abide in me. Remain connected to me. Get your life from me. Live your life out of your connection with me. And so if we're going to talk about what it means to abide in Christ, if we're going to have any kind of way that we can grasp it in our heads in a way that, that is helpful for us to move out with and, 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 and focus on, it's simply abiding means you are getting all of your life from Christ. Every part of your life is coming from him. You're living your life out of your connection with him. That's what it means to abide in Jesus. And so, and so there's so many, so many uh, ways that we could talk about it. It means you're trusting him. It means that you're believing him. It means that you're resting in him. It means that you're savoring him. It means that you're receiving from him. It means that you're residing in him. It means that you're living in him. So it's really hard to just whittle abiding down into a little sentence and say, go, do that. It's so comprehensive to what it means to rest in, to savor, to enjoy, to believe in and trust, to relate to Christ. So it's this really vast concept, and, 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 and Jesus does us a huge one here. He, he doesn't leave us clueless. He gives us this very helpful picture to understand what it means to, to abide in him. Now, at this point, sometimes you'll see some pastors bring out something fancy, uh, like they'll, they'll bring out like a, a powered outlet and a plug for a vacuum, and they'll say, to abide means you take your plug and you plug it into Jesus, and you can turn it on. Or it means to take a guitar, plug it into, and then you got sound, right? Like it amplify your life. I want to just say, how about when we think about abiding, we let Jesus' illustration be the dominant thought because it's going to be the best. And what does he say? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, if you, if you need help understanding that, it means to relate to Jesus in the same way that a branch relates to the vine. To relate to Jesus in the same way that a branch relates to the vine. Now, verse 4 says this, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. And then Jesus goes on, if, if we're missing this for some reason, if this is still going over our heads, look at what he does in verse 5. Hey, just so you know, I am the vine and you are the branches. Jesus gives us the very clear understanding of what we are in this illustration. He's drawing a picture of abiding using a vine with its branches. Now, I had, um, I had gone outside yesterday and gone to a uh, pile of sticks I have, and I, I picked out a very nice branch I was going to bring in uh, for you to have an object lesson with. And... Um, It's still at the house, so um, we'll, we'll, we'll picture it, okay? So, um, well, actually, I could just take this out, right? 
I'm just kidding. Whoever made these, these are nice. I'm not going to touch them. We'll leave it. We'll leave it. I don't want get to in, get in trouble with the decor team. So if I were to hold up for you a branch, right, just a branch, there would be some obvious things that you could conclude about the branch just held up by itself. Was the branch, would the branch be designed to function or live that way? Mm-mm. No, it wasn't designed to live that way because if I'm holding it off of a branch, it's not on a what? A vine or a tree. Instinctively, you already know that when you see a branch, oh, that must have come off of a tree. That must have come off of a vine. That branch didn't come to exist or grow to the point that it is at without being connected to something else for its life. In other words, that branch has no ability to live on its own. It just can't. It's impossible. In fact, the moment that that branch is separated from its connection to the vine or the tree, it dies. The very moment it's snipped or removed or falls off. Guys, no branch has life within itself. The branch is absolutely and utterly dependent for life and for fruitfulness on the vine to which it is attached. Now, here's the silly thing about this. If I hold up a branch, that's the obvious thing, right? When you look at a branch and you see that, oh yeah, that's obvious. It it, it can't keep living. It's dead. It's done. What if I were to hold up a human being? (laughs) I need someone pretty light. Any volunteers? Jesus is saying that we're branches. Which means the very first truth that we need to become convinced of in our innermost hearts is the most definite reality about every human being. And that's simply this, that we don't have life within ourselves on our own. You just don't. But it feels counterintuitive to think this way, doesn't it? It feels counterintuitive to think this way. Because if you were to look at the physical among us, right now, you guys, you're existing. You're there. You're breathing. Like, man, you're pretty independent. You're not on life support or anything, right? Like, man, you're you're doing good. You're you're alive. You can you can see that and be like, man, oh, your heart's still beating. Yeah, yeah, you're pretty independent. I don't think we realize how absolutely dependent we are on so many things outside of us. Uh, How long can you go without food? Did I hear a couple hours? Well, this one got turned upside down. Uh, on average, I think it's about a week, uh, maybe two, um, depending on, 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 on your health. How many, how, many, how many days or hours can you live without water? About 36 hours, maybe tw- some people 24 hours. Some people three, di- three days. Man, you must live in one. I love it. How, how long can you live without air? 
about as long as you can hold your breath, right? Two minutes, three minutes. Tom Cruise can do it for seven. Can you see by your physical design how absolutely you dependent you are on other things than yourself? And that's already in nature. And if you think that's just a physical reality, Jesus is saying it's a spiritual one too. If you want any kind of life in your spirit, in your heart, in your life, in the innermost being of yourself, you won't experience life, especially as it was designed to be, all on your own. Now, deep down, most of us, we kind of, like, I think you're in agreement with that, right? Like, at this point, you're probably like, yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, you're, you know how dependent you are, right? Raise your hand if you're not depending on anybody else or anything else in life. Good, you've got the lesson. So here's the thing. Deep down, most of that we know inherently and we can agree with in thought. And yet, I don't think we've realized yet how much we rely on false vines for things that only the true vine can give us. Brothers and sisters, the world holds out to us so many artificial vines, so many imitations, because when we realize that we, we really can't do this on our own, we are immediately going to start looking for all of these different places to connect into to try to find life from. And the world is absolutely quick to say, hey, check this out, right? Hey, no, try this one. Hey, no, no, here's this one over here. Especially if you spend the time on the internet for five minutes every day, you'll find out how much the world is full of fake vines. And it's telling us to try to connect into all of them. And we, it's so easy for us to be like, okay, I'm doing that. Let me try this one. Let me try this one out. And you go into it and you're thinking that they're able to give and sustain life. So some of you, uh, me included, went into your marriage looking for life in your marriage. You went into your relationship expecting that it was going to provide you life, that it was going to give life to you, sustain life for you. Some of you found out real quick how terrible that is, how exhausting that is. Guys, your spouse wasn't made to give you life. And if you don't have a spouse yet, Anybody you find that might fit that criteria is also not designed to give you life. Which means a past relationship that ended or a future relationship that you're hoping for will never be a source of life for you. They weren't designed for that. I can't tell you how many times I've met with couples and, and their marriage is at the end. It's just on the rocks and it's rough. And the simple symptom of it all, the reason why their marriage has so withered is just simply because they're looking to one another to be what only Jesus can be for them. And their marriage is withered and not flourishing 
Now, the world offers all sorts of other fake vines in that category of how we relate to one another with friendships, with, with, with partners, with living in with one another before we're married. Try it out before you buy it, right? Like how incredibly insane that is. But let's just keep going. The, the, another one, like your career, your ability to build up your resume. Hey, find life in there, right? Build up your, your, your 401k, build up all of these things, and you're going to find life as you do it is what the world will tell you. Or what about your kids? Man, some, a lot of us have, 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 have plugged our abiding system into how our kids do, how, how successful they are. Or, or some of us have found that they aren't successful and, and, and it hurts us and it, and, it, and it injures us. It's like, man, they're not living up to what I taught them to do. What about your, your, your wealth and your finances, right? Like, like connect into that, abide in that, trust in, and remain in that, build all of that up. And none of those things were actually designed by God to give you life, though they are good. They're not able to be God. The problem is when we make them God. And so we, we try all of these faux vines out. And we keep abiding in them, and we keep abiding them, and we keep getting frustrated and more and more annoyed and more and more angry and more and more sad about the state of our life. And we sit there wondering why our lives are so withered and they're not flourishing. Like you can, you can be abiding in the future hope of retirement, thinking that, hey, when you get to that day, life is good. Or you can be abiding in the idea, man, if only I didn't have to work and I could just be on the golf course, man, that would be a great time. And then you get on the golf course and you find out how terrible at the game you are. Or when you go, like, man, I wish I wasn't here. I wish I was fishing. I wish I was out on that lake, had that boat, right, and I was fishing. Man, this would be good. And then you get out there and you realize the fish don't want to cooperate with your joy. Guys, you can, you can abide in the likes and the comments and the shares that you try to get from everything that you post on social media thinking, oh man, this is where I'm going to get everybody to like me. This is where I'm going to find life. And then you get one sour comment and it wrecks you. As you can, you can put your abiding into trying to build up your money and wealth and all your possessions and, and to, to try to build up this facade that you've got everything together while you're drowning in debt or you're just absolutely empty because none of those things were designed to be able to give you life. Now, these are all kind of random examples that are, that are in some cases, silly but here are some that, that it might be a bit more serious. There is a way that we can abide in our own insecurities about ourselves. About the things that we don't like about ourselves, whether it's a physical or, or a personal personality issue. Insecurities about who likes us, who doesn't. And we can, we can try to get life from that. We abide in our insecurities instead of our salvation. Or maybe, maybe some of us, we can find ways to abide in our, our angry vengeance 
more than we do in God's righteous justice. There's a way that we can abide. (laughs) This one was, was me. There's a way that we can abide in the guilt of our own failures, believing that it's the guilt that's actually going to produce life in you when all it does is keep breeding death. Thinking that keeping yourself angry at yourself and and bitter at yourself and hating yourself from all the guilt of all your failures, hoping that all of that's going to produce the fruit of change in your life when it never comes. It's because change doesn't come from guilt. Fruitfulness doesn't come from that fuel. Now, I, I think this one's probably going to hit a little bit more harder for some of us, so I, I just want to preface that I, I, I love every one of you, and I think this is important to say. There are those of us who have experienced kinds of losses that most people are unfamiliar with. And it creates appropriate grief and sadness that we should feel and should experience in those seasons. But then there's a time where we can start to abide in our grief more than we do God. Where where we're remaining in our grief, thinking and staying there and kind of expecting it to be able to give us life when all grief can do is keep reproducing grief and sorrow. You know, I was, I was listening to a podcast uh, episode that I would highly recommend. It's called The Overcomers, uh, featuring Pastor Matt Chandler. And there was this uh, episode um, about a family, a couple, who had a newborn son, and, and it turns out that he had severe diseases that for several, the first three, four, five years of his life, he battled with. And there would be seasons where he'd come close to death and by God's grace, he'd survive. And the mother in this podcast said, said that she was abiding more in the outcome that she wanted from God than she was in God himself. She was trying to derive life from his future hoped healing than she was in the healer himself. And in the middle of that great pain and sorrow, the Lord revealed that to her, convicted her of where she was deriving her life from, And by God's grace, there is a transformation in her heart, this shift. And she immediately started to feel peace and joy because she started trusting in God more than the outcome. Started resting in and abiding in Jesus more than what she was hoping for. Brothers and sisters, That's the whole point of this illustration of what Jesus is saying. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's telling us that by nature, 
we are reliant on something. We have to be. We're inherently completely reliant on things, certain things, for life. And Jesus is saying here that he came to be the very thing that we derive our lives from. He came to be the vine. He's the true vine, the the real one. He's, He's the only real one that can actually produce any kind of life in you that bears fruit. So like in everything, in every sorrow, in every frustration, in our insecurities, for our identity, for our own purpose, for our security, he's telling us, no, no, come and just remain in me. Believe in me. Rest in me. Get your life from me. Live out your life from me. He's saying, no, he's able to be the very thing that we've spent all our lives looking for out there. He really is. And we need him in the same way that a branch needs the vine. And he's the only true vine. And that demands that we live in this perpetual, constant state of relying on Jesus for everything. Brothers and sisters, as far as we drift away from our awareness that we need Jesus, we drift from abiding in him. Do I need to say that again for the people in the back? As far as we drift from our awareness that we need Jesus, we drift from abiding in him. And I just want to make sure you understand, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is not a pill to try. He's not just something you try out. Like, oh, let me try this. Get my fix for that. No, he is the vine for life. So we don't give Jesus a try. We give him our life, and in turn, we get his life. And so we rely on him because his life is enough to start ours and keep it going. So continued dependence upon him. Continued reliance upon the vine. Persistently, spiritually, abiding, residing, remaining in him. Being 100% reliant upon him. Brothers and sisters, this is actually also counterintuitive because when you, <laughs> when you are raising your own kids, when you raise kids, small human beings, right, there's a certain goal that you have for them. Do you raise them to be dependent upon you for the rest of your, their lives? No. Now, terrible mothering or fathering would do just that. No, you raise your children in a way that you can boot them out of the house one day and set them up in the world independent of you. That's part of the goal. It is the complete opposite of growth in Christ. In fact, growing in Christ moves from independence into greater dependence. That's maturity. That's growing up. 
Y'all remember the, uh, the, the little ice cream place that unfortunately closed down? Sweet Frog? Sweet Frog? Literally, the mean, it means sweet, fully rely on God. That's why they start to call it that. Fully rely on God. It's sweet to do that. It's also sweet to eat their ice cream. <laughs> Maturity in Christ means you are growing more and more dependent upon him. And what happens as we grow more and more dependent upon him, his life starts to live in us. You see, brothers and sisters, the key to the Christian life is Christ's life in the Christian. So we rely on him because we know apart from him we cannot live or produce fruit. And as we rely on him, his life is lived out in us. So the key to our life in Christ is not actually do better, try harder. It's get out of the way and let the vine live his life in you and produce his fruit through you. That's what Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And so in reality, there, there, this, this, I read this quote that just kind of blew my head up. This relationship of abiding in Christ, this inner fellowship between Christ and the believer, and, and what's demanded there is not primarily a continued being for, but being from. It is not the holding of a position but in allowing oneself to be held, corresponding to the relationship of the branch to the vine. And unless we continue to draw all of our life, every part of ourselves and all of our existence from the true vine, we can do no good. In fact, Jesus here tells us that there's a clear way we can know if we are abiding in Jesus. What does he say happens when someone is abiding in him? What do they bear? They bear fruit. Look at verse 5. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. So, so what is the indicator of abiding? Fruitfulness. It's fruitfulness. And as the branches derive their life from the vine, the vine produces not only its life, but its fruit through the branches. Now here's where it gets a little scary here. What if there's no fruit? What is that clearly indicating? There's no, no abiding. There's no connection. Verse 2, when he talks about the Father as the gardener, he says, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, the Father removes. And skip down to verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them throw them into the fire, and they are burned. 
This is a stark alternative. The purpose of this is clearly to insist that true Christians bear fruit. There's some measure of fruitfulness in their life. It's a true mark of Christianity. The only alternative is just dead wood. So you either remain in the vine and there's a fruitfulness to your life or you're not in the vine and you're gathered and thrown out and burned. And so we hear, we hear about the fruit. We hear about the fruit that the branches bear because of the life of the vine in the branch. And what's our temptation? What is it that we think we should start to do? Bear what? Fruit. We hear how vital fruitfulness is in the sense that it's, it indicates whether or not you're abiding. And so our temptation is, all right, I'm going to start producing more fruit, more fruit for the kingdom. I'm going to be more patient. <sighs> Or I'm going to start giving more and more. Be more generous. Here you go. (laughs) Or or I'm going to stop getting angry. (sighs) Okay. Or I'm going to evangelize the next 12 people I see in the next five minutes. What's the gospel again? When that's our mentality, when we hear about the imagery of the fruit on these branches, we have a tendency to put the cart before the horse. Branches don't strive or work or fight for the fruit. How many of you ever walked through a vineyard or, or kind of, maybe, let's just keep it more general, we'll say an, uh, an orchard or any kind of thing that bears fruit, and you walk by it and you hear grunting like, like the, 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 the branches are like in the gym making gains, lifting weight. More fruit! <laughs> and then one pops out. How many of you have seen that happen? Heard that? Is that how, or how many of you have walked through the vineyard and, and you hear the, the, the branches claim, I claim more fruit. In Jesus' name, I declare more fruit in my life. Is that how fruitfulness works? No. Brothers and sisters, you can't white-knuckle genuine fruit. You can only bear it. And that's because every fruit is not the result of effort. It is the result of connection. Every fruit is not the result of any effort on your part. They're the result of connection. Brothers and sisters, if you stay connected, fruit is natural. If you abide, grapes pop out, right? So, so to, to leave this morning thinking, oh, I've got to obey more, I've got to work harder more to bear more fruit, I'm going to do this, then you've missed the whole point. Don't focus on the fruit. Don't fertilize the fruit. If you try to fertilize the fruit in your life, you burn it. Where do you put fertilizer? At the root. Don't fertilize the fruit in your life. Fertilize the root. Fertilize your connection to the vine. Supplement it. So if you want more patience in your life, 
Abide in Jesus. You want more love to naturally come out of your life, especially for your boss who just seems to be a jerk all the time? Abide. You want kindness and generosity and any kind of self-control? Abide. Just get to Jesus. Connect to him. Trust in him. Rely on him. Deliver your life out of him. Instead of asking for patience and kindness and asking the Lord to, to make you more self-controlled, just ask for Jesus. Ask for the vine himself. Now, it can still be hard, though, because, because in this thing called the Christian life, when we live life together, it's a very easy thing for some of us to start looking at other ones of us and say, man, they've got a little bit more fruit in their life than I do. Huh. That saddens me. Or you, you, can, you can find a way to try to compare yourself and your own fruitfulness to the fruitfulness of another. So you start to covet their fruitfulness and try to replicate it. Sometimes you just try to take a cluster of grapes, tape it on you, say, look, I can, I, I'm fruitful. None of that is genuine. None of that is natural. Brothers and sisters, some of you are new branches. And, and, and new branches don't bear as much fruit as mature branches. And it's okay. Just abide. Should you want to be more fruitful? Yeah, absolutely. There's only one thing that you can do about that. It's to abide in Jesus alone. Now, I am learning to become more content with speaking on less amount of passages more deeply every week. And so we're going to revisit this passage next week because there's more to talk through because Jesus talks about the way we are able to experience more fruitfulness in life. But for right now, I think our challenge is just simply to examine what is it that we're trying to derive our lives from? Where it is that you are abiding? You know, this week I was convicted myself. Uh, my wife's birthday is tomorrow. Don't tell her I said that. And I'm trying to reupholster our kitchen chairs. Apparently, being Christ-like doesn't uh, come with carpentry skills. <laughs> I tried. Um, and I messed some stuff up. I found out I did some things wrong, stripped some screws out. And I just got frustrated. And... To calm myself. I don't, I don't get angry. When I get angry, I just get quiet. I don't, I don't like blow up. But when I get frustrated, um, to try to calm myself, I just hop on YouTube shorts or Instagram reels and just scroll for an hour. And, uh, and this week I realized that that's what I'm going to abide in when I get frustrated. Instead of running 
to Jesus where my mistakes and failures are forgiven and atoned for and my identity isn't shaken. I run to some other trying to like fake vine where it reminds me of how I don't measure up, how all my mistakes are on full display and my identity gets so confused. Jesus wants to be your vine even in that little thing too. He wants to be where you run to when you and your spouse get in it, get in a fight. He wants to be what you go abide in when you don't get that raise at work or you don't get that job. He wants to be where, where you run to when, when you experience the greatest kind of losses in life. He wants to be the vine. He is able to be the vine. That makes even the weariest seasons, seasons of fruitfulness. So if you just bow your heads and, and I, just, I just want to invite you to ask the Lord to examine your heart to show you where you find yourself abiding, where, where you're remaining, to try to get life out of it. Career, successes, uh, productivity, accomplishments, influence, Whatever it is. Holy Spirit, right now, I just pray that you would convict our hearts of the things that we're abiding in that aren't you. Of the vines that we've tried to get life out of. We know that we cannot have any spiritual life apart from Christ. And yet, in our relationship with you, in our full confidence and faith, in your ability to save and, and give us eternal life, we still find ourselves connected to other things. Father, I just pray right now you would grant your spirit to expose within us those things that we're relying on to get life out of that have only caused destruction and sorrow. Jesus, I, I think we all agree that in every season and circumstance in life, we want you to be what we abide in, what we remain in, what we trust, where we find our security and our hope. So Father, with that being our desire, would you grant the grace God, for those in here who have never had a relationship with you before, who have never claimed faith in your son, or have maybe done it in thought or in word, but not in conviction, not in love, not in the sense that this verse is, this passage, this illustration is drawing us to. 
I pray, Jesus, that this would be the morning where they stop abiding in whatever it is that they think is going to sustain their life for eternity. May they put it all in you, every part of themselves. May they abide in you for everything. Christ, we love you. Spirit, we love you. Would you do a powerful work among us? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you guys would stand, I'd love to pray a prayer of benediction over you. If you have uh, kids um, and you want them to be in a music video, uh, a few months ago they sang a song up here, I Thank God, and uh, Luke's done some recording and we want to make a, a church video of it. So if your kids can remember that song and you can hang out for a little while afterwards, they'll be up here. Make sure you do that. Um, but if you need prayer for anything, if the Lord's convicting you of things this morning and you're not sure how to move forward with them, I'd love to talk with you. Um, love to care for you in whatever way I can. But the prayer of benediction I want to pray over you is from Romans 15, 13, and it says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have an incredible week. Be blessed.